You know, you're a diva. You're a diva. The definition of diva in the dictionary, it's a picture of Robert S. Skidmore. That's fantastic. I, your I love that. middle name is E, I know. I wanted to be the talent, but now I'll just be the diva. Fine. I'm Rob. And I'm Michelle. And I'm Artie. And I'm still here. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we will talk about Elon Musk protecting free speech, the end of globalization, question mark, the vibe shift, again, and we will have Jan Eckhout talking to us about superstar firms and why they're reducing your paycheck. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. Well, everyone, welcome to episode 31. That's the same atomic number of gallium. If you ask me what gallium is, I'll tell you I don't know. Uh, apparently, it's an arsenide, which has similar structure to silicon and is useful silicon substitute for the electronics industry. My old job is an important component of many semiconductors, also used in red LEDs. I think it was, that was a Sting song, <laughs> the light-emitting diodes, not Roxanne, for anybody like who's that. listening. Please turn off your red light. <laughs> because of its ability to convert electricity to light. And before we get into the serious stuff, we did have some listener feedback about our last episode. Rob, I know you've got one you're itching to tell us. I'm itching. This is from a high school friend. He said, on a recent drive back from an inconvenient museum, and thank you, museum, for being inconvenient, his parents enjoyed listening to your return appearance. I bet they did. And they've now adopted the practice of blaming supply chain issues for all daily problems. At least they're not blaming me. But yes, that's a good, that's a good way to look at it. Our work here is done. The best thing I've heard about uh, supply chain issue problems is last time somebody asked somebody why they were single, <laughs> supply chain issues. I ghosted you because of supply chain issues? Another listener wrote that uh, she's here for the wit and trade intel. She loves the podcast with gems of trade and global politics, quote unquote, intersped with hilarious banter between the witty hosts. And no, I did not write that. She also wrote that it's great insight into the Geneva expat bubble, too. And her vote for the best kebab spot in Geneva? Smart lady, Parfum de Beirut. Merci. Merci beaucoup. She had me until Parfum de Beirut. Anyway, another listener, this one from Joyzy. He didn't write us an email. He just wrote me an angry, randy text that we need to step up the editing bit. Cuts need transitions. And for the love of sound, normalize audio levels and give us some loudness. He has to blast our podcast at full volume on the phone in the car stereo in order to hear us. And my question is, what's wrong with blasting our, the podcast in his car? Yeah. yeah. And I've got also three words for this listener. Operator error. I think he does not know how to operate those devices. I was going to say, let's blame supply chain issues. <laughs> if you have any more tidbits uh, or rants you'd like to talk to us about, feel free to write us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. So again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. Or on Twitter or Instagram, you can find us. Well, everybody, that brings us to the news recap segment. We know most of you come to Tradesplaining to hear the recap and news, so we're not going to let you down on that front. We've got a few points that were really interesting to us and we think that you ought to know about. First one is Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter. So what does this say for potential market concentration in 2022? We'll talk a bit about this with Jan Ekut as well later. Yep, definitely. So Elon has made an offer for Twitter. I think it's been accepted. I don't know if the transaction's gone through, but it's over $40 billion. What does it say about media, about companies and so on? So he would take it private so that he would be the kind of arbiter of free speech on Twitter. So do we want to go more towards content moderation, which we know is very imperfect? Or do we want to go towards uh, Elon Muskville, where you invite Trump back to spew uh, badness on there? I think it's also a time to buy Twitter because the... Uh, 
stock values are kind of plummeting a little bit right now. So we see also Netflix is hitting uh, a dip. We'll talk about that with Jan a little bit later. So I think it's it's kind of situational as well. And I, I do think that if Elon Musk does buy it, I will use it just as little as I use it now, only to retweet things that come out of the trades planning account. And me, my account as well. Those I don't normally get to. If he's got 40 billion, then he's got a few bucks left over just to buy us as well. We'll say whatever he wants, content moderation or not. Yeah, I'm thinking of trying to just spew. I think I would be better as a bot. I think you are a bot in real life. You you troll me <laughs> day in, day out. I, I think it, it's, it, it's as you said, it's quite indicative of the way things seem to be going. I know people are sort of losing their minds over you know, him buying Twitter, but we can't forget that, you know, billionaires have owned newspapers in the past. This one is just a really big newspaper that reaches many more people. So it has, comes with its own complications. It also only makes about a billion dollars in a good year. And he paid 40 times that. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets that extra 39 billion a year to make this purchase worth it. On the flip side, we'll be talking about competition and, and market power later on. But Netflix uh, had a 30% drop recently. We believe it shows us what happens when there's too much competition in the market. So it'll be interesting to talk more with Jan about that. It also seems there's too many um, players chasing a smaller and smaller amount of dollars. So it, it goes against the grain when we're talking about these firms seem to be getting bigger and bigger when Netflix, which you know all the analysts, and I call them analysts in quotes, said that it's never going down. It's the greatest stock you can buy, not only, you know, not more than six months ago. So it's interesting to see uh, that play out. Sure. And, and the Facebook uh, people were super excited that Facebook didn't lose more people. That was like the big defense of Facebook stock value was we didn't lose more people. It's, it's sort of like our work. It could be worse. Four billion users. And that's, you know, so I think it, it tells us something about how the market is working today, that they're really looking at those uh, subscriber numbers. Four billion users, so exactly what tradesplaining has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, round it off. Four billion is accurate, thereabouts, give or take a few billion. The other thing that was on the news recently, and this was the last couple of days, was that the UK and the US are looking at looking at forming closer trade ties. So this is quite ambitious, and it's a shift from what what, what we were seeing in the months preceding the, the Russian invasion, specifically of Ukraine. So the UK and US said that they're seeking to, as I said, work quickly to tighten trade ties, even as a discussion on free trade uh, agreement remains sort of frozen. Yeah, I think what's interesting for the, for the trade folks is that this is a kind of forerunner of other things. They want a closer trade relationship, but trade agreements may not be it. It's going after specific trade restraints. It's going after trade with U.S. states. It's going after particular things like uh, women's, you know, women's economic empowerment. It's going after procurement. So the idea of just having a trade agreement anymore, you know, really is, is, is not enough, I think, for developed countries. So that's, I think, an interesting step. And I think we already have quite a close relationship with the UK. The pandemic is fueling a sovereign debt uh, ticking time bomb quote unquote, and not many people are following that for obvious reasons, see Ukraine. But it's something that's important that we shed some light on. There was a really interesting article in Bloomberg talking about how the, the sort of danger of pandemic-fueled sovereign debt poses a significant risk for developing countries. Yeah, I think we, we, we see this, of course, it's cyclical. We see, and you know, a lot of people took on debt just to try to cushion COVID. Hmm. Now we have inflation, we have massive increases in interest rates. So suddenly you've got this huge debt burden, which was super cheap. Now it's increasingly expensive and it's starting to take all of government budgets. So you can no longer buy bread. You can no longer subsidize fuel. You can't pay for education. Whatever the hell you want to do, you can't do it. So what does this lead to? Why are we interested? Because 
you know, then pressures start, pressures start to mount. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what do you do with all this debt? You have these choices to make. That's true. Interest rates are rising. I can no longer buy a house in the U.S. if I wanted 5% now. Yeah, I read that. I could never buy a house in the U.S. anyway. My brother, this is a joke, but my brother told me the reason that millennials have so much anxiety is because they see that their grandparents bought houses for like pennies on the dollar that are now worth millions. And they could never hope to own themselves unless they lived in uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, live someplace where it's not expensive. And in Wisconsin, it's not a good example. Madison, super expensive. My parents' house that was sold when I was a kid for 130 is now 800000 Live someplace like where, you know, my mother-in-law lives, Chestertown, Maryland. Two hundred grand, you can have four or five bedrooms, drive-in garage, a little garden. Do they want to sponsor us? There's actually something There's actually something on her road that's available, by the way, Michelle, if you did want to. 10% finder's fee, because somebody will buy that house now because of this. They haven't, and I'm thinking of having a real estate empire taking the whole neighborhood. Anyway, 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 we're digressing. There was also a bit which particularly useful for you, Rob, because I know you've been following quite, quite intently, is that the, the French really recently had their election, so Marie Le Pen lost. Is this a referendum on globalization? Because I think all of these news sites had <laughs> had the copy ready and they just insert the cut. They, they replace the country and that's it. And because they were all ready to go at the same time. So is this a referendum on globalization? So the question is, is her loss actually a victory for the right? So she, she got in the second tour. She got 45% or 50%, you know, 45% of the vote or 42%, whatever it was. She was a very significant candidate and everybody's kind of tacking right because of this. And is it, a, is it about globalization? Yeah. They talk about buying power. They talk about free, freewheeling capitalism. So she's got basically a member of the elite in, ahead of her, uh, in front of her, Macron, and he's having to backpedal from free trade. He's having to backpedal from, from globalization and so on. So I think it was a kind of referendum on that. And, Globalization didn't really win. I don't think anybody really likes it very much. I, I think to, ultimately it was a it was kind of a, a vote against. And this is a kind of another thing we see in all these elections. People are voting against, not for. And we'll see what Macron could do. For me, I knew I was a member of the elite when I watched this debate. And I said, boy, this, this guy sounds good. From Chateau de Skidmore. <laughs> this guy sounds really good. Humble brat. <laughs> he watched it from Chateau de Skidmore. <laughs> Jan Ekut is the author of The Profit Paradox, an account of how market power by dominant firms threatens work. He's also the ICREA research professor at Pompeu Fabra University in Barcelona and has also taught at UPenn in the United States and in Great Britain. He currently lives in Barcelona, where you can also visit his website at janekut.com or find him on Twitter at jan underscore ekut. Jan, thanks for joining us on the uh, podcast. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little about yourself? How did you end up working in the field of economics, which is a dream for many? And uh, how did you focus on market power specifically? So I started studying or being interested in economics, I guess, like a lot of people, maybe a little bit by accident, but also because, you know, a combination of things. One of them was I was kind of interested in, in more STEM topics, but I was also at the same time interested in, in uh, social issues. And then and I thought economics was a combination of the two. And it turns out that being an academic, a researcher, is really using these two aspects uh, kind of very intensely because it's highly technical. We use a lot of math and coding and things like that. But we're trying to answer, trying 
definitely trying uh, to answer social issues. And then last, uh, you also said, asked me about how I came to study market power. It's, I mean, it's a central theme really in the profession. That's one thing. But at the same time, it's also true that I came to it because I've always been interested in labor markets and macroeconomic issues. You know, I'd been asking questions about how market power, power would affect wages. And I came actually from that door into the market power room, so to speak. And once I was there, uh, that happened probably about uh, six, seven years ago, I started to kind of develop much more of my research in the direction of market power, but always with the eye on what happens on the market. And did, I mean, COVID, we started the podcast in COVID, so we started asking this question, but how has it changed your view or has it not, you know, do, do the issues the same? Are they different? Are they worse? Are they better? I think on the issue of market power, actually, COVID has, has changed quite a, a bit. And I think we'll talk about it later, but but it has, in a way, uh, confirmed my view about the issue. Because I think of COVID as, at least for the economy, as a form of very fast technological change. You know, in, in the shortest time, we have been teaching over Zoom that most of us have never done. So we all bought our kind of ring lights and uh, equipment to do that kind of efficiently and, and, and of better quality. And the reason why I think this is important for market power is that market power, in my view, and I think we'll talk about this extensively in this podcast, is driven by fast technological change. So COVID-19 is one form of fast technological change. Just on the ring lights, I just wanted to put my vote in for us getting ring lights for the podcast because we don't have those. I, 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 I vote for it. We still look very pale. <laughs> well, speak for yourself. <laughs> Because I've been doing nothing but suntanning. We look washed out. <laughs> anyway, but we're digressing. Your recent work is focused on sort of the role of superstar firms and, and how this growing market concentration is having an effect, an important effect on trade and, and the global economy in general. Can you tell us a bit on, on what your research has found and how it's affecting workers and, and consumers more specifically? Is this something they should be worried about? In the first instance, finds that we, we see an enormous rise in market concentration. One of the things that we do is we measure it slightly differently than what typically is done. And that's also why I think it, it caused a little bit of a stir because, you know, no one had looked at it the way that we were looking at it. And, and so what we find is that basically the economy-wide, the margins that firms charge, which is basically the price at which they sell something compared to how much it costs to produce that something. And that cost is just the production cost. Those margins had have been growing enormously since 1980. In fact, until 1980, they were fairly flat. And then these margins went from about 20% over cost to about 60% over costs between 1980 and, and today. This is a cause for concern because it's telling us that something is going on at what firms are doing. And as you said, it's not the case that therefore all firms have market power. It is true that some firms have it, and it's true that it means that these firms actually make higher profits. But it's only a small number of very large dominant global firms. And these large dominant global firms are basically managing to create profits, not because they are innovative, which they also are, but because they use that same innovation to keep competitors out. And that is what precisely is the biggest cause for concern, because that has implications, that has economy-wide implications for workers, for consumers, but also for other firms, for smaller firms, 
for stock firms. So, I mean, I, I think it's, it brings up an interesting point we've been talking about, which is start, you know, stock market going going up. For instance, in 2020, I my portfolio never performed better, even when the you know the market was falling off the shelf. So he only started calling it his portfolio in 2020. That's how good it was doing. <laughs> Let's call it my ex-401k account. But uh, and of course, it's come down. Thankfully, otherwise, I'd be really, uh, I'd be feeling really guilty right now. So we saw this discount between what you know between, let's say, the financial economy and the real economy. And you know, I guess we looked at averages really, but those averages, I think, were driven by very large firms, and and maybe that's what we weren't seeing. Is that what you're seeing out there? This disconnect. Uh, and it's driven just by big firms? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the best example is the, is the Dow Jones. Dow Jones is an index of 30 firms. In the United States, out of 6 million, globally about 100 million firms. And these 30 firms, you know, have been doing extremely well. In fact, you know, I, I have a, a chart that I produce which shows that the Dow Jones adjusted for inflation since the Second World War. And if you had invested after the Second World War in the Dow Jones, by 1981, you would have exactly had the same amount as in 1945. But since the early 1980s, the Dow Jones has been growing through the roof. You just mentioned this kind of a dip right now, but this is a temporary dip. So this growth is basically reflecting what's going on with these very dominant firms. And that's precisely what I call the profit paradox, the, the paradox that it's great that firms are doing well, that they're making profits. But... It's not so great if they make these profits because they actually face too little competition. So have we been here before, economically speaking? So it seems like there are uh, parallels between what the biggest companies, monopolies, things I read about in textbooks and Rob lived through because he's that old. <laughs> Such a standard oil. Yeah. <laughs> in the late 1800s, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and things like this. Is that a fair comparison? I think so. And, and the, the reason why is, well, first of all, we have limited data. I mean, we have all the stories, but there's limited data on the entire economy back then. So it's not so easy to exactly measure what we can measure today, but we do know enough about it. I mean, we knew that there was a problem of dominant firms and this was standard oil, but this was in kind of a number of industries, right? It was electricity, it was rain, transportation, it was phones and telegraphs and things like that. So, so these were... You know, again, new technologies, and it was fast technological change back then that gave rise to it just the same way that it's giving rise to it now. And this has all the consequences that we uh, see today too. The wage stagnation, we see the decline in, in startup firms, we see smaller firms that are really not uh, managing to, to compete with these uh, dominant firms. And by the way, the reason is very similar to or the underlying economic mechanism is very similar to the underlying mechanism that we see today, which is this enormous scale economies, you know, being big as a railway company is good. And it's good for the customer in the sense that, you know, we don't want two parallel railway lines competing against each other. It's just a waste of investment and resources. But as you can see with the railway lines, that also means that if you own that railway line, you can charge basically whatever price you want. You don't have to pass on that efficiency of this fast transportation and substituting your... So, so, and something like that is going on today too. A company like Amazon is offering amazingly efficient services. They can bring you know whatever object that you want to buy to your doorstep at a, a price that's lower than any of the competitors' price, but it's still substantially above their cost. They've invested 
in technology, but also in bricks and mortar, in their fulfillment centers, their network of distribution, that is extremely expensive to set up. And it really means that there can only be one firm doing it because this needs scale before that enormous investment is going to be profitable. But once you have it, you face no competition and you can charge prices that appear low, low compared to the competitors. And that's the good part of it. But they're really not low enough compared to what it costs. I hear that. On the other hand, we're getting incredibly cheap services, sometimes free, especially in the digital form. And also we think, well, globally, it's nice to have flagships. You know, it's, uh, we hate Facebook, but it's nice to say Facebook exists. It's nice to say Amazon exists. So is there really a damage to consumers here? I, and I think you're implying there's also damage to workers. And then I wanted to ask you, you, you used the date 1981. Is that basically when U.S. competition policy changed? Is that a little bit why, why we see this, uh, the, the rise of these companies? So first of all, I mean, competition policy is also something that changes at the same time as the technology changes. We've done quantitative research to try and distinguish between the two. We basically run a horse race. Some of that is there, but it's actually quite limited. It's there, it's important, it's particularly there for allowing the type of mergers and acquisitions that have been allowed and are still allowed today. So yes, that is one aspect. But I don't think that the antitrust enforcement is, at least since the 1980s, is explaining why we have the dominance of Amazon or of Meta, Facebook, or we have the dominance of Google. I mean, that's really truly technology. And that's the fast technological change that we were talking about earlier. That fast technological change is both the hero and the villain of the movie. Because as you said, this is great that we have these efficient services. It's great. I can follow my high school friends everywhere they go and find out what, you know, what they're doing on their birthday. And Facebook can make billions <laughs> off that, off of that little nugget of info. So who's, I mean, it's a villain, but you're not giving us that what we want to hear, which is what do we do now? Because for me, I was taught in economics that structural factors. There's too much easy money. There's kind of, you know, regulation's not right. Markets aren't set the right way. Incentives are wrong. But you seem to be making the, you know, technology and the firm kind of the protagonist. So who, who do we blame? That's easy. No, <laughs> it's very hard who to blame. I mean, again, the firms that are doing everything right in the sense they're innovating. Yeah, on the margin, they're doing a few things wrong. The thing is that, you know, who we have to blame is... Basically, the regulator, you talked about antitrust, but antitrust is not just, you know, supervising or stopping mergers and acquisitions that shouldn't go through, but it's also there to regulate markets that don't work well by themselves. We know when we have extreme returns to scale, when we have a natural ten tendency to have a, a monopoly, we know that a competitive market doesn't work by itself. That doesn't mean that we can't have competition, but we need regulation to foster competition. And typically, the way that can best be done is through separating the advantages of scale from the operators who compete for the customers. Let me give you one example. I have a phone plan in AT&T in the United States, and I have a phone plan here in Europe. And my European phone plan costs about two to two and a half times what I pay for AT&T. The, the phone, the technology is the same. The network of cell towers uses similar tools and similar technology as well. So there's nothing different. The big difference is in a piece of regulation. In that particular case, the telecom firms are forced to let competitors use their network of towers. And so you, basically you see prices lower. 
AT&T doesn't face that pressure. AT&T faces pressure from T-Mobile, but T-Mobile has its own network. And that means that we only have three providers in the United States, roughly the smaller ones, but really three big ones, because we have three parallel networks. We have three railway lines next to each other. But the solution here is really have operators operate on these existing networks. Because if you have someone that is allowed by the U.S. telecom regulator to use the cell network towers of AT&T, then AT&T really is going to have to compete on prices with that competitor on its network. We don't want to break up these large firms because if you break them up, you lose the scale advantage. That's precisely why they were working so well. Well, not working, but why can we so efficient? But we want, on that large network, we want different operators competing against each other. And that's precisely what's missing in many of these markets. It's not a problem for all markets. I'm not worried about the market for dentists, or I'm not worried about the market for plastic bottles, water bottles. That all works fine. Or UN staff members. No, that market needs to stay restricted. (laughs) You know, there's, there's quite a few markets that work perfectly well. With new technologies, we have more and more markets that basically because of digital technology are benefiting from size and scale. And you mentioned before, you know, many of these products are sold at zero price. That's actually part of the problem because it makes it very hard to explain to the customer what's wrong with having a free app. Yeah. Makes it even harder to convince customers that there's a problem. So the next question we were hoping would would stump you because it just happened, but I think you you kind of answered it for us already, but we'll go through it anyway. So Netflix recently had a huge drop in in, in value and many people are talking this is a result of competition from Disney and, and, and others. But Netflix is not really a company that we associate with, you know, having many competitors or many people didn't say that, you know, said it would be Netflix forever, essentially. Is this uh, a case of companies being able to use the internet uh, for free, so having access to these rail- railways, if you will, and that's why they can compete? Because it seems like there's there's too many competitors in the streaming market, and Netflix is suffering from it. I mean, the, the, the streaming market is very complex because there's also the whole issue of providing content, and providing content is extremely expensive. Streaming is extremely cheap. You know, you have... To, you invest, obviously, in setting up the whole infrastructure and the network. But once you have it, whether I have a million customers or two million, it, it's nearly zero cost adding more people. So you would think that it has exactly these scale advantages. But then the reason why I think it's so complex in, in this market is because now they've also ended into producing. And I think there is it's nearly a brick and mortar industry because now you really have to have that very expensive content that you have to keep providing. But I don't think it's a proof or it's a sign that these large-scale columns are not there. I think that it tells us that even if you have these dominant firms, that doesn't mean that they have an uncontested position. eBay has been around for 25, 30 years now. Facebook has been around for more than 20 years. Google has been around for 25 years. I think it's unlikely that these companies are going to disappear. If it was really a truly competitive market, first, they would be much smaller. And second, there would be much more turnaround and turnover. So we, we're, we're just about to jump into the next segment, but we, I wanted to, we, I work with small companies, we work with startups, we work with those generally outside the developed world, in the developing world. So what's the implication for them of all this? They benefit in some ways from free services. So small companies I work with in you know, Indonesia wouldn't have Facebook probably if they had to pay for it. They wouldn't use it as a channel to sell. So what do you think the implications are for them? 
I mean, I think I, I, I beg to disagree with this. Small companies are suffering. Small companies are suffering because, you know, it's true that we have all these free services that also as customers, we have them. So companies have them too, maybe of different natures, but they have many of these, these free services. But at the same time, like, you know, just private customers, they're also paying too much for other things. Maybe indirectly, as we talked about earlier, but, you know, people who supply to Amazon get squeezed by it. Let me give you a fact. The number of startup firms in the early 80s was about 14% of all firms. This is just out of all firms in the United States, 14% are basically new firms. Today, that's about 8%. You tell this to anyone, you say, this is the digital age. This is the time of startups. I mean, Google, Facebook, all these were startups at some point. You know, people sitting in their garages and inventing stuff. But the fact of the matter is we don't see it in the data. Yeah. And why don't we see it in the data? Because these large firms are really dominating. Now, why is that a problem? That's a problem because startup firms are firms that grow faster. They hire more people, in fact, disproportionately young people, and they innovate more. Uh, yeah. Works. Like innovating, Amazon innovates like Amazon yesterday. Like they're starting a, a podcast. I would like to say that if there's any larger podcast that would like to acquire us in order to get us out of the market, we would entertain, you know, that an offer, right? We, we would? We would, yeah. Okay. Depends on how big. I mean... So on that happy note, I think that brings us to everyone's favorite sort of expat-focused uh, questions. So this is the lighter part of the interview, which folks will know. And I guess we'll start off by asking you a pretty easy one. So what have you learned about your home country, Holland, from living abroad that you didn't realize before? Well, let me just slightly move a little bit first out and talk about Belgium, where I did grow <laughs> is, up. Is, that's so, like a, a suburb of Holland. We call it the Hanalux. <laughs> I'm sure all the Dutch listeners are going to be very everybody. So. We just lost um, a Dutch vote. <laughs> please don't, please don't, don't broadcast this to any Belgian uh, experts. Actually, I learned quite a bit about beer hmm. because, you know, seeing... I started moving abroad when basically the Belgian beer started to expand globally. And, you know, it's, it's like a poster child of what's going on with this, these dominant firms. And everyone asks me about, oh, Belgian beer is great. They are great. I like them. But at the same time, when I was starting to go out, when I was a kind of a, an 18-year-old kid, we can drink in, in, in Europe at 18. In every little town or even village, there was a, there's a brewer and that all disappeared. Of course, they were consolidating like crazy. So that was definitely efficient because you know, some of these small brewers just couldn't make it anymore. So I learned a lot about the, the, the beer industry because, you know, people ask me abroad, you go in the U.S. and they say, oh, tell me about that beer, that Abbey thing. I learned if you order one and then you drink it without checking the alcohol content. You wake up the next day. Especially before noon, it could turn into a long day. <laughs> these, these monks were really uh, <laughs> knocking them back, huh? Okay, your book already tells me it sold more copies than mine. Is that a, is that a sign of too much market concentration in the book sector? Yeah. Why why aren't our books selling? Why aren't our books selling? It's it's completely true, but I'm under embargo from my publisher to talk about this. Ah, uh, <laughs> there we go. And the publisher, in turn, is owned by Amazon. No, by the way, I'm with a very small publisher who also owns a <laughs> distributing through Amazon. We, you know, the 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 world spins around a small town in Switzerland called Geneva. And uh, so does this podcast. So we sometimes ask this que this leading question: Geneva is boring. Please discuss. Prove me wrong, like that that meme. How, how can it be boring if you have this wonderful fountain in the lake? I mean, 
it's, it's, I haven't seen this anywhere else. He's trying. It's not bad. It's He's not trying. Bad. That's a good answer. It's not bad. Yeah. I figure like you can get in trouble more here than you can get anywhere, really. I don't know it for a fact. I just know it's true. This is the 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're a very rigorous uh, scientific podcast. You're an academic. You will appreciate this. We ask this across all of our demographics, all of our guests. Have you ever had your bike stolen? It's kind of a pastime here in Geneva. It's one of the ways you know you're here. So I, I, I studied in a university town in Belgium, in Leuven, and there it's, it's the, the, I would say, the, the noble sport to steal a bike. So yes, I got about, I think, three bikes stolen. Did of you ever course, steal one? You, 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 get, you get very cheap, crappy bikes because yeah. you know that's what's going to happen. So the lock usually is worth more than the bike. But it did happen. And did you steal one? You can be honest no, here. No. <laughs> Indefinitely. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. <laughs> Rob wanted to know about the Belgian uh, football team. But as we know now, bike stealing is the national sport. Okay. The last one that we, that we have to finish with here is what is your favorite kebab place in Geneva? It's the Swiss national food. I, I, I would say um, I will transplant the, my favorite uh, kebab place. I'm going to kind of do a, a campaign for them to open in Geneva. It's going to be Abdul's Kebab from Manchester. There's no comparison. No comparison. Why? Because they have very good kebab, kind of the, the raw material. Of course, you know, that's, that's kind of a contradiction in terms. But, but on top of it, they had this wonderful uh, Pakistani mix of herbs-flavored sauce. No one can beat this. Cool. So use the use the promo code Ekhut at when you go to yes, Abdul's exactly. Kebab. <laughs> Abdul's Kebab.com forward slash no. and you get a free Hogarth. It's it's unlikely it's unlikely you, you you'll get the promo because you have to spell the name right and that's very hard. Jan, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a really excellent discussion, at least for me, at least. I believe Rob as well and Michelle. We're really excited to have you on and uh, hoping to have you on in the future as well. We hope you enjoyed it. Before we go, where can people find your work? We've already mentioned that you have a, a book out called The Profit Paradox, but where can people go to find more of your work? So you can find my everything that's behind the book in terms of data and more details about what's going into the book on the website www.theprofitparadox.com and if you're really as nerdy as I am and you're interested in the research you can go to www.yannegartoneword.com and there you find all the nerdy research and academic stuff that <laughs> website has a monopoly on all the information <laughs> is it on Audible? we got to check that yes, it is on Audible it's on Audible too, yes it's with, on Audible it, now, I, I have to say that it's been a wonderful it's wonderfully read by a great guy with a Beautiful British accent, if you, if you like Ooh, British accent. Very nice. In itself, and he has a beautiful voice. So one question that's on our listeners' mind, but mainly ours, because it's us talking, is this the end of globalization? And for that, we've got a special segment with our guest host, Michelle. Michelle, take it away. Tell us a bit more. Is globalization over? Because the people want to know. Is this finally it? Plenty of ink has been spent, or will we just get another round of articles in, in news magazines everywhere in a couple of months again? No, globalization is very much still here. What might be happening, though, is a vibe shift. Have you heard about this? I had to Google what a vibe shift was. Don't tell us more. This came up a few months ago in this very underground newsletter, and I don't know who picked it up, but it's been everywhere ever since. What is a vibe shift? Nobody really knows. It's why it's about the vibes and not about anything concrete. But basically, it's just a feeling that there's a huge change that's coming. Could it be a major recession? Sure. Could it be the end of globalization? Maybe. But usually young people are pretty optimistic about it. They think it's 
we're going towards something good. Or maybe it's just the people at Coachella who were high and, you know, wanted to feel the vibe. Is this related to the, the idea of just, like, vibing seems to be a, a verb that just means anything right now? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I'm in a good mood, I'm vibing. Or don't blow my high, I'm vibing. Or people just say vibes. Anyway, the point of this entire segment is that my recommendation to all the journalists who keep predicting the end of globalization is to just retitle their stories into the vibe shift. First, because it sounds cooler. And also because it gives you a way out if globalization doesn't end. You can always say that definitely the vibes shifted because nobody knows what vibes are anyway. Let's stop talking about the great setback, the great resignation, the great whatever, and categorize it as a vibe shift. It's much smoother. And, po and the power of positivity. And Coachella. That should be the name of this podcast. So you've, he you, you've okay. heard it from the horse's mouth, straight from a, the mouth of a millennial. What is the future of globalization? Tune in next episode to hear more. Or maybe not, if the vibe shift ends. If my vibes shift elsewhere. I think it's probably, this is probably the moment when uh, Michelle and I want to bring in a, another important point. It's uh, Artie's birthday episode. Oh, stop. I didn't, I didn't tell you, did I? And uh, we did want to say happy birthday. Uh, you're 35 now. This is kind of the time when you should be kind of getting over that hump, maybe starting to act like an adult. 34. Oh. He's 22, folks. <laughs> I'm 22. I feel like an 18-year-old. So would you like to just tell us, I mean, I think this segment's all about that. Where are you going to be in 10 years? If you asked me that when I graduated college, I would have probably said Morgan Stanley, and I ended up in Geneva. So who knows? I'll be podcasting for life for, as a living. That's what I'll be doing. He'll be vibing. Is what <laughs> vibing. He'll be doing. Anyway, thank you guys for the birthday wishes. And I'm expecting emails to this ilk and more reviews on trades planning as a birthday gift to me. But if you want to buy me a watch or something else expensive, I'll, I'll take that as well. Write to us at birthday. That trades planning. Use coupon code birthday at Artie's bank account here. Actually, you know what we could get you? A subscription to Audible. Actually, you're right. Situations like this are why I use Audible to get my mind off news of like, it's my birthday and I'm getting older and things like this. That's because Audible is a subscription that allows you to buy audiobooks that you can listen to on your phone. And Audible also allows you to choose from a gigantic array of audiobooks narrated by amazing narrators that you can listen to from anywhere. Right now, I'm listening to The Profit Paradox by Jan Eckhut, which is a great book and our interview guest today as well, which talks about market concentration in the 21st century. In all seriousness, audiobooks are actually a great way for when you get tired but still want to read, or in my case, when you have brain trauma and can't read a book. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not joking. It is funny, but I'm not joking. I can't read a book, so I listen to everything nowadays. Get your own free book right now by going to audibletrial.com slash splaining, or use the promo code splaining when you check out. So this brings us to Rob's favorite part of the podcast, and that is the This Week in Local News segment. So I'll try not to say too much and let Rob just take it away. I think, you know, we've talked about the Ukraine war. We've talked about, of course, the rising inflation, the food crisis, and so on. Also, 26 trees are being threatened here in Geneva by the construction of an underground parking. So local residents, of course, are asking the point, why do you have to cut trees to have an underground parking? They've written a letter. They've written a paper letter. No, no, they've sent a letter. It's got a stamp. It's got a signature. They sent it right to the Tribune Federal, right to the top folks. They've asked for a couple of things. First of all, a change in local government, restructuring. They've asked for the whole law on uh, local development to be changed. They've asked that a new formula be put in terms of what do we do with trees when we cut them. And they've also said that absolutely that this parking cannot go forward. And one of the local officials, Antonio Hodgers, had said, and this may not translate, he believes there's a possibility for a happy end. 
But I, I particularly liked the title of the article, uh, and I didn't believe it was real until you sent it to me. But it basically says 26 uh, trees, and in my broken French, are menacing by parking private. And my immediate thought was that, that they should make an English language version for the English site. When people are reading this, the title should be, Don't Be a Menace to South Geneva. That's a happy ending. So we're very happy that this important dialogue is taking place. And we do wish the local residents all the best. I, I, for one, I'm wishing for a very happy ending for all involved. Now that I'm a car owner, I do believe that underground parkings are essential to my quality of life in Geneva. And you idle when you're stopped not going anywhere else. So I'm sure you do that too. <laughs> I would like to, but unfortunately it's a hybrid. <laughs> Speaking of humble brags, keep going. <laughs> I bought it used. Come on now. Forget about it. But it's still a hybrid. Did I mention it has a neon light? Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 31, brought to you by Gallium, Vibes, and of course, Belgian beer. Gotta love it, those Belgians. That's right. We also want to thank Michelle for not only helping producing this episode, but also in doing a fine job co-hosting. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon in a couple of weeks. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and really anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, hashtag five stars. As I said, they do help, and we know you all have the time. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining and Instagram at Trade.Splaining, or email us your questions or comments slash diatribes the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly. <laughs>